0: Last week, Smyrna was, hey, you're doing great. You're about to be persecuted really bad. This week, we're going to look at the church in Pergamum. Pergamum is about 45 miles north of Smyrna. So you're looking about 90 miles or so north of Ephesus. This is the first city that is not a port city. However, it was the capital of Rome in Asia Minor. Think of it as kind of a Washington, D.C. Everything happens there. Dignitaries. the, The Roman emperor's own people are there. This was a city with a ton of people that had controlling power in Asia Minor, which is where all of these churches are. They also dealt with some specific stuff. There was also, here in this city, not the, not the center of it, remember that was Smyrna, but there was also a massive amount of emperor worship that took place in this city, which makes sense. It's the capital. But the bigger thing was that here we find in Pergamum, Pergamum the altar to Zeus. And that's going to come into play with some of the stuff that Christ says to the church in Pergamum. So... 45 miles north of Smyrna, we've continued to go north of Ephesus, the capital of Rome in Asia Minor, and was the alt, had the altar of Zeus in it. Remember, Zeus is the king of the gods in ancient Greek mythology. He's Jupiter in Roman mythology. Let's read it. We're in Revelation 2, 12 through 17. It reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality." So you also have some in the same way who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's dive into this. First off, you'll notice that on your note sheets... There's nowhere to fill in blanks. I did that on purpose this time. The last time that happened, it was an accident. This time I did it on purpose because this sermon is going to be a little bit unlike some of the other ones we've had in the year and a half or so since I've been here. I'm going to be throwing a ton of information your way. Most of the time, we dive into a scripture passage and we kind of parse it out or whatever, whatever word you want to use and do it that way. We're still going to be doing that. But I'm going to be throwing a ton of information, context, and stuff at you in this sermon. So I wanted you to not have to try to fill in blanks. You can write whatever you want to about stuff. The information that I'm going to be sharing with you is already there. So you don't have to worry about that. I did that on purpose this time. First, let's look at how Christ describes him. Remember, he had said he describes himself differently each time. We see him in Ephesus in verse 1. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among his seven golden lampstands. It shows his power, his might. Then we find in verse 8, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Remember, Smyrna, emperor worship, God among men. But Christ distinguishes himself by saying, listen, your emperors die. I came back. And now here we see the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, we see his power and his might over people, over the nations. And the sword is going to come back in the very last verses when he says uh, in verse 16, I will make war with them with the sword of my mouth, with truth. That's the sharp two-edged sword, his truth that he speaks. It shows us his power, his might, who he is. So that's where that is. So number one here, where Satan dwells. I don't know of any real real scholars, and I'm not one of them, but I try to read, that thinks that Christ is saying that Satan literally dwells in Pergamum, that that's where his throne is. In fact, most scholars, and I happen to agree with them, believe that Satan's throne is in present-day Baghdad, what used to be Babylon. If you look at the world and where most evil originates from, it's right there. It's where the Antichrist will set up his throne when he comes back. Babylon, present day Baghdad. That's a whole sermon for a different time. And again, it's more speculation than it is. It never says that in scripture. So don't be like, Pastor Sam said that the Bible says no. It never actually says that. I'm just looking at context and everything that's happened in the world like other scholars do. So I don't think that's what it means. But remember I said that this was the altar of Zeus. Now maybe some of you don't know. I love Greek mythology. Zeus was what? The king of the gods, yes. But he was also a god of lightning and the ruler of what? The air. How is Satan described in scripture? Prince of the powers of the air. I have the, of the personal belief that Zeus is based sh- completely off of Satan. That Satan himself deceived the ancient Greeks and said, well, I already have this power, so I'll just make it work with Zeus too. So I think that's what Christ, and like I said, this isn't something that I'm going to die on, but I think that's what Christ is referencing here when he says, listen, this is where Satan dwells. I think he's drawing you to look at the fact that the altar of Zeus is there. And they could be easily deceived by this. Now let's look at what Christ really has an issue with with this church. Number two is the issues with false teaching. We're going to look at three issues here that Christ brings up. The first is the teaching of Balaam. He's mentioned in 2 Peter 2.15 and in Jude 11. So he existed. He's not a false god. I want to point that out. He's not some god that they worship. He was a man that taught. Now who was he? He was a man who paid, who, who, he was almost a mercenary for prophets. He went to kings and rulers and said, yeah, I'll be your prophet, you pay me. And then he told them what they wanted to hear. Look back at the prophets in the Old Testament. How many of them told kings and, and powers what they wanted to hear? Very few because most of them were not doing what God wanted them to do. So Balaam is this Preacher who's telling everybody what they want want to hear. And this is a big deal because that goes completely against the gospel. And it says here that this church in Pergamum kind of allows this teaching to continue in their midst. We're going to talk about why that's such a horrid thing a little bit later. But that's the first issue. The second one, and we're going to, we're going to, I'll, we're going to talk about meat sacrificed to idols, but that's the last one. We're going to talk about the Nicolaitans first. Now, we see them also in Ephesus. I didn't get a chance then to talk about them. However, if you go on our Facebook page and look at our and click on our, our recordings of our sermons, we re recorded that sermon, and I gave the whole thing. So if you want to go hear that, you can go hear that. You can also go hear the past year's worth of sermons. Or if you're like, man, I really missed last week. I want to hear what happened in Smyrna. That's there too. And this one will be up there this week or late, or early next week. It's great. But so Nicola- the Nicolaitans, who were they and what were they? They followed another man, again, not a god here, another man named Nicholas. Now we find Nicholas in Acts chapter 5. And what's happening there is the... The the Gentile widows are not being taken care of. The Jewish widows are, but the Gentile widows are not. And they go to the church leaders, the 12 apostles, and go, Hey, we're not being taken care of. And the 12 apostles go, We have too much on our plate to take care of this. We'll give it to somebody else. There's a sermon in there about that. Maybe we'll preach it someday. But, so we have Stephen as one of them. And of course we know about Stephen. He gets stoned and stuff. But Nicholas is also one of the men that's chosen to help oversee and make sure that everybody is getting what they need. Which says to me that at that time, Nicholas was not a bad guy. And somewhere down the road, something changed. See, what Nicholas began to teach was this. Your soul is saved. Your body is not. Therefore, as long as you're on earth, let your body do what it wants to. It wants to go... With prostitution, remember this is in Ephesus where we said their prostitution was the worship of Artemis, right? Go do that. You wanna go get drunk? No, go do that. You wanna go, you wanna sin in any way? Go do it because your soul is saved. Your body stays here anyway. So let it do what it wants to do, which would have made sense in Ephesus because there were a bunch of rich people and that's easier to change, right? If I came up to you and was like, hey, listen, Jesus Christ loves you, get saved, and you can still keep living the life you are. That sounds great. And again, it would make sense that this teaching would happen in Pergamum because you have a bunch of officials who don't want to change their life, but they want to be saved. And that's what Nicholas is teaching. And what it says here is, listen, you are are allowing, Christ says, you have allowed these teachings of these men to infiltrate your church, and you have not thrown them out. You have not cut it off. You allow it to remain. Now let's tackle the meat sacrifice to idols. We're going to go back in scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's 12 verses or so. I'm going to read the whole thing here because Paul writes to the church in Corinth and talks about this whole thing of meat sacrifice to idols. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he, is weak, who, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble." Paul has a really circular way of talking. Let me try to break it down for you a little bit. This is what Paul says. Hey, there is no such thing as meat sacrifice to idols or a God because there is only one God. Now, pastor, it talks about idolatry. We've talked about it. There are idols. Yes, and Paul is not saying that you don't hold certain things above God sometimes. But what he is saying is that there is no such thing as meat sacrificed to an idol because there isn't one, only God. There's no such thing as meat sacrifice to Zeus because there is no Zeus. It's kind of circum, you know, it's weird. So Paul says, listen, eat the meat because it doesn't matter. Except there are some among you who can't because you've lived in this world, in this, in this culture long enough that you believe certain things and so your conscience fights against you. Let me tell you this, church. It is a sin to go against your conscience. Let me break it down for you. I'm going to be honest with you. Most of you in here are older than me. And you come from a generation where, especially when you were younger, going to see a movie in a movie theater was a sin. It's not a sin. There is nothing evil about a movie theater unless you're seeing certain movies at the movie theater. But the theater itself isn't evil. However, I had a professor in college who told me, he said, I can't go see a movie in theaters. A movie I would watch at home, I won't watch in a theater. And I asked him why. I said, you know. And he says, I do. I know. But the only time I've been to a theater since then, my conscience screamed at me that it was wrong. So it's wrong for me to go. I know it's right, and that's okay, but my conscience screamed. Here's the thing. Your conscience can sometimes be wrong, but you still have to listen to it. If your conscience says don't watch a movie in a movie theater because movie theaters are evil, don't go. I don't care what your friends want to do. You don't go. Your conscience is wrong, and it says there they have a weaker conscience. It needs to grow. But it's still wrong for them to do it. And the same thing with the meat thing here. So... I don't think that Christ is saying here, there's a problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols. I think the problem is that this church in Pergamum, which is surrounded by the altar of Zeus, with meat sacrificed to him, have grown up in this culture, and their conscience is saying, don't do it, but they do it anyway. And that's the sin, that their conscience is saying, don't do it, but they do it anyway. And I think that's more what Christ is saying here. He's saying, listen, stop eating the meat because your conscience says you can't. In 30 years, when it's a new generation of Christians that have not grown up with that, they can eat the meat sacrificed to Zeus, a nice lamb chop, who knows. But you can't because your conscience tells you not to. So we have these three issues with this false teaching. And the issue becomes that when you allow any false teaching to remain, it spreads like a disease. If something is rotten, you don't cut off a little piece and keep it. You throw it out. You get something completely new. Now with cheese, let's use cheese as an example, right? Because cheese gets moldy really quick, but you can cut off the moldy part and the piece of cheese that's left is still good, unless you've left a little bit of mold. It's safe to cut deeper into the cheese and be safe than sorry than to be like, well, I don't want to waste all of this cheese. I'll just try to cut off the little layer. you got to go deeper. The same is true with false teaching. You can't say, well, we'll get rid of the teacher, but we'll allow, we'll allow the people that believe it to, to remain and to keep having authority or a position of power in our church. No. Though they might be your best friend, though they might be your brother, your wife, your sister, though they might be the head of your diaconate, whatever they may be, if they are believing in false teaching, you cut them off. It sounds harsh. But if you allow it to remain, the church fails. And that's what's happening here. It says it, oh, verse 14, before the sons of Israel to eat sacrifice, or, uh, to remain a stumbling block, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality these teachings were a stumbling block to these people and they're not getting rid of them the message that we get from this, to this church in Pergamum is beware of false teaching be wary of it keep your eyes and ears open for it not so that you can be taken asunder by it but so that you can cut it off now, here's the thing I want to tell you about doing that. You can't do it by yourself. If I was like, I will stand against false teaching, eventually I'm going to give in and start believing some of it because you can only hear some of it for so long before it starts to infiltrate. But if me and, and Ken and Lori and Don and, and, and all of us are together and we're working, and we're going, okay, we are watching. We can warn each other. We can strengthen each other and go, we got to get rid of that. One last thing about false teaching before we uh, sing one song and, and leave this morning. Just because you don't agree with somebody does not mean it's false teaching. I know some of you don't agree with everything that I say. I don't agree with everything that all of you say. If we did, it would be a really boring church experience. We all come from different backgrounds and stuff like that. But my hope and my prayer is that you've never sat there and thought, wow, Pastor Sam is way off base and he's trying to teach us something that's not true. I hope that I've been able to back everything with Scripture and the things that I have, like the altar of Zeus, that I can't point to scripturally necessarily, I can point to and say this, this, and this, but it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. I will never stand here and tell you, do what you want to do. Your soul is saved. Let your body do what it wants. Nope. I'll never say that to you. I'll never tell you that God wants you to be happy. He doesn't care about your happiness. Sorry. He cares about your salvation, and he cares about you becoming more like his son. You'll be happy when you get to heaven. But right here on earth, he doesn't really care as much about your happiness. He cares about you becoming more like him. God doesn't care about how much money you make. I'm not saying he wants you to be poor, but he recognizes there are more important things than a dollar amount in a bank account. My hope is that I can stand before you in 20, 30, 40 years and say, hey, I preached the gospel and I preached God's grace. And I'm hoping that one day we can all stand before God and he will go, good job. You did not allow false teaching you kept to my word. In the middle of hell, you kept to my word. Be wary. Your adversary prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And we're such weak creatures. But God is so good to us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for allowing us to read these letters to your churches, for allowing us to worship you. God, help us to recognize false teaching and to be rid of it. Help us to stand strong in the face of adversity. God, I don't, I don't necessarily think that anybody in our congregation is going to end up dead because of you. Well, not because of you, but because they believed in you. But if they do, help us to stand firm through it and to remain faithful in you anyway. Father, we praise you. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.